All right, we are back from a necessary break. We hope you made good use of it. We uh, went outside for a little bit and appreciated how the smell of newly mowed lawn is such a pleasant thing on a pleasant spring day. We also took the time to ponder the issue of the thermal gun. Well, whether you want to go with what Ryobi's calling it or what the news media is calling it, and I'm going to go with thermal gun. Which is not what the manufacturer calls it. They call it an infrared thermometer. By the way, if you're the sort of person looking for a hot tip on investing, I imagine that Ryobi and other companies that are making these thermal guns uh, might be a good thing to invest in. We may need more of these in the future. Maybe. At least in China they will. That's where they're shipping them. The Chinese are putting these to use as screening devices. And by every indication, we are not doing so in America. Anyway, we were just playing with one in the backyard and concluded that uh, these things tend to, tend to run, at least on the forehead, a temperature of like 93. And since my core temperature for actually taking it was over 98, obviously it's a lot cooler. So I don't know what you need to screen somebody for a fever with one such gun, but uh, they apparently are using these in Asia to good effect. Something else we need more data on. And when it comes to doing things right, everybody's wondering what, what's going on over in Germany. The Germans uh, are seeing their case numbers uh, go up and up, but their death rate has not. I'm holding an article a couple days old noting that when Germany had 34,000 confirmed infections, they only had 172 recorded deaths, which is just 0.5% the total cases, which is a number we're seeing thrown around quite a bit. We have to keep in mind that's still five times worse than the flu. While it remains dramatically lower than Italy's soaring case fatality rate, which is now at about 10%. As mentioned in the last segment, I think that's a number you're maybe seeing in the future when various regions find that they're out of ventilators. We'll see. Some people are saying one thing the Germans are doing right is a lot of testing. The German government has not released official figures, but set it at a capacity to test 160,000 people every week. And of course, as the article points out, that uh, the German death rate might effectively be watered down because its figures are taking into account the many mild cases which are being missed in other nations. Again, the key metric is the absolute number, but there's some encouragement there. Like everybody else, we're following events as they evolve day by day. The last we heard from the White House, which we're at this point trying to largely tune out, is the notion that we really ought to get back to work in this country on Easter. Mr. Millen has asked, why isn't they not aiming for Good Friday? That caused me to think back to childhood prayers and that phrase, and the third day he arose again from the dead. To which I would add, to my knowledge, that's only been done once. And something we definitely don't want to do on today's program anyway is to take a look at some of the things being circulated as regards what our government might be planning down the road in terms of continuity of government. Evidently last week, Newsweek published a report entitled Inside the Military's Top Secret Plans of Coronavirus Cripples the Government. And, and while this piece was rather alarming, the reality of the situation of what could happen is actually a lot more alarming. And if for no other reason than that, we're just not going to go into it today. Another thing I think I will mention in passing is the disturbing datum that apparently the turn of mind that took place in the White House, or at least in Mar-a-Lago, in Donald Trump's mind, came not from information he received from our various and sundry intelligence agencies or our various and sundry health authorities, but from Tucker Carlson. 
Writing in Axios.com, Jonathan Swan noted that it took a stock market crash and Fox News host Tucker Carlson to uh, snap the president out of his coronavirus delusional mode. Something else we need to go to bat for for the president on slightly is that widely circulated quote that I like the numbers where they are, which is a statement that he made when the Grand Princess cruise ship was seemingly marooned off the California coast. When he was asked why not evacuate and isolate the cruise goers, he said, I don't need to have the numbers double because one ship that wasn't our fault. After which he apparently added, I like the numbers where they are. So he wasn't proposing that we don't do any testing in the country, but he was proposing that if we brought a cruise ship back in and the numbers looked worse, he wouldn't like it. So it's a little better than summer reporting, but eh, not all that much. It does appear to be a matter of record that when Donald Trump was being given that tour of the Center for Disease Control and the question of the COVID-19 mortality rate of 3.4% came up, he dismissed those fatality figures as a false number. Now, it does seem at this point that he, he, he may well be right about that. But as I said before, I don't think that's the key metric here. Another thing I am also sure of is that we're not going to necessarily be protected by Trump's natural scientific ability in how we're going to go forward here. I think I'm going to quote something else we should keep in mind as we look to the future. This comes from Richard Preston's bestseller, The Hot Zone. He had this to say near the end of the book. The emergence of AIDS, Ebola, and any number of other rainforest agents appears to be a natural consequence of the ruin of the tropical biosphere. The emerging viruses are surfacing from ecologically damaged parts of the earth. Many of them come from the tattered edges of tropical rainforests, or they come from tropical savanna that is being settled rapidly by people. The tropical rainforests are the deep reservoirs of life on the planet, containing most of the world's plants and animal species. The rainforests are also its largest reserves of viruses, since all living things carry viruses. When viruses come out of an ecosystem, they tend to spread in waves through the human population with echoes from the dying biosphere. Here are the names of some emerging viruses. Lhasa, Rift Valley, Oropuche, Rocio, Dengue, Chikungunya, the Hantavirus, Machupo, Hunin, and then there is HIV which was very much an emerging virus because its penetration of the human species is increasing rapidly with no end in sight. He wrote that in 1995, and that was, in fact, halted by effective antiviral treatments. But in spite of the effective treatments we developed for HIV, this remains a very serious concern, this matter of emerging viruses, which, again, we can confidently predict will continue to come out of obscure areas of the world, and or perhaps markets in Asia where people and animals are not kept separate. Notes microbiology principles and explorations. Many viral diseases involve other animals that act as reservoirs, a healthy organism harboring an infection agent that is available to infect others, or vectors, carriers for a virus. In these cases, the virus could cross species barriers if the vector transmitted the virus from a reservoir species to humans. For example, prior to 1930, yellow fever was thought to be carried solely by one species of mosquito, Aedes aegypti. By controlling that mosquito in urban areas through vaccination and spraying with DDT, the disease could be controlled. However, in the late 1950s, an outbreak of yellow fever occurred that was not carried by Aedes aegypti. 
Rather, jungle or sylvan yellow fever was carried by another mosquito of the genus Hemagogus. In the jungle, these mosquitoes transmit the virus among monkeys that live high in the forest canopy. Forest clearing through tree cutting has brought the Hemagogus mosquito from the treetops to the forest floor, where it passed the virus to people involved in timber cutting and agricultural activities. This yellow fever situation represents an excellent example of how viral diseases can remain endemic to those parts of the world where an insect vector lives. However, in tropical areas where once uninhabited lands are being converted for use in agriculture and farming, contact with the insects and the viruses they carry is inevitable. So this concern about chopping down the tropical rainforests around the world, we have, we have another reason to realize that's, that's a really bad idea. Not only might it release lots of greenhouse gases, it might also prevent these areas from being a sink for CO2 where it is put back into solid form. If one wants to get sort of philosophical about it, you could argue that it looks like the Earth might be fighting back. Well, not literally. But said Richard Preston in the hot zone, in a sense, the Earth is mounting an immune response against the human species. It is beginning to react to the human parasite the flooding infection of people, the dead spots of concrete all over the planet, and cancerous rot out in Europe, Japan, and the United States, thick with replicating primates. The colonies emerging and spreading and threatening to shock the biosphere with mass extinctions. Perhaps the biosphere does not like the idea of 5 billion humans. Or it could also be said that the extreme amplification of the human race, which has occurred only in the past 100 or so years, has suddenly produced a very large quantity of meat, which is sitting everywhere in the biosphere and may not be able to defend itself against a life form that might want to consume it. Nature has interesting ways of balancing itself. The rainforest has its own defenses. The Earth's immune system, so to speak, has recognized the presence of the human species and is starting to kick in. The Earth is attempting to rid itself of an infection by the human parasite. Well, that is a bit of creative writing, but when he wrote this, the Earth had 5 billion people. Now we have 8. Or if we don't today, we're, we seems as though we soon will. Oh, and, and even in the worst-case scenario, what this virus is expected to do on planet Earth, I don't think it's really going to dent the Earth's population. If 10% of the world's population were to die in this current pandemic, a loss of, say, 700 million people... It does not seem that that would stop the Earth's population growth. We need to do something about this. Uh, one hopes that um, you know, the realization of that will sink in in the wake of this pandemic. Seeing what's currently happening in New York City due to the great crowded conditions we find there is uh, possibly a prelude to what we're going to see in places like Nigeria and India. Well, let's close out today's program with trying to find some things to talk about that are a little more optimistic. Here's truly is encouraged by the fact that we live in a society that, that is, uh, provides a standard of living that you know, kings of ancient times could only dream of. Why don't we start with indoor plumbing? Oh, and speaking of plumbing, Mr. McGrillan, being a rather skeptical person, like myself, was not completely reassured by our advice to us that it was possible to use newspaper as toilet paper and suffer no consequences. So it was that he took upon himself to take a bowl full of water and insert inside standard toilet paper, Kleenex tissues, paper towels, 
and newsprint. And then after letting it soak a while, see what happened. If you perform such an experiment, as we just did, you will discover that toilet paper really does break up very effectively. Kleenex does too, somewhat, but it does hold together a lot better than toilet paper. Your paper towel, well, that's been engineered to stick together for use in wiping surfaces, and it seems to stick together when you soak it in water too. And from our limited experimental trial, it appears the same can be said for newspaper. Therefore, our previous advice on this program, that you can go ahead and use newspaper in lieu of toilet paper, is something we should probably modify. You can probably get away with it in very small amounts, but um, as your needs increase, you might want to consider getting a paper bag and putting your newspaper in that to be disposed of in the garbage, or burned perhaps, or getting a bidet, which we'll no doubt have more to say about in future installments. At any rate, in addition to indoor plumbing, something we should all be grateful for is the modern market. I was really struck many decades ago while traveling down in Mexico how tedious and time-consuming it is to go shopping in the kind of market they had in ancient times and, you know, the Middle Ages and up, up actually, and frankly, up until fairly recently. The time you've gone merchant to merchant and haggled over the avocados and the eggs and the cheese and whatever else you may need, etc., you've wasted an awful lot of time. We've gotten very spoiled by the fact that we can take a shopping cart, walk into a market, and have most of our needs met in a timely fashion at a reasonable price. I think at this point we might do well to take a little uh, flight of fancy into the origin of the supermarket, in this case as reported by the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. We're all stuck at home now, so i got to say on my part, I'm glad that I've got a few of these up on the bookshelves because they're enormously entertaining. In fact, before I talk about the origins of the supermarket, I find myself detoured into a typical item from the Bathroom Readers Institute under the heading of Forgettable Flops. They mention how William A. Calderwood of Peoria, Arizona, got the bright idea of helium-filled furniture. In 1989, he was granted... In 1989, he was granted a patent for such a set of furniture, which uh, you could basically let float up to the ceiling and then were required, pulled back to the floor by a rope. Well, I'm sure that wasn't going to work for any other reason than the fact that helium, being very tiny atoms, manages to escape from its enclosure um, pretty easily. But what really got my attention was porcupine-flavored potato chips. The story is, in 1984, Welsh bar owner Phil Lewis was discussing potato chip flavors with some Romanian customers. They told him of an old gypsy delicacy, porcupine baked in clay, suggested the possibility of porcupine-flavored potato chips. Using a closely guarded recipe, Lewis set to work at his kitchen to produce the first packages. Customers compared the case to smoky bacon, but as the venture attracted more and more publicity, animal lovers protested. Lewis was forced to abandon it in favor of more traditional flavors. Anyway, moving off to my original intended piece here, it says, We take it for granted today, but less than 100 years ago, the supermarket seemed like some sort of bizarre fantasy. Here are some historical highlights. At the end of the 19th century, a typical food shopping trip wasn't as easy as it is today. Buying groceries would have included, for example, stopping at the butcher for meat. 
You could also choose from a small selection of canned goods and bread. A stop at the fruit store for fresh produce. Stopping on the street to buy from milk wagons and from horse and wagon peddlers hawking their specialties. Anything from baked goods to fish or ice. Final stop at the local grocer. He sold canned goods, potatoes, and sugar in 100-pound sacks. Also molasses and sauerkraut in barrels, bacon in slabs, and butter in tubs. Strolling through the aisles was out of the question. A customer told the grocer what he wanted, and the clerk would fill the order. Then, in 1916, Clarence Saunders opened the Piggly Wiggly store in Memphis, Tennessee. Astonished customers, wrote the Encyclopedia of Pop Culture, were given baskets and sent through the store to pick what they needed, a job formerly reserved for clerks. The customers were a little bit bewildered by the dozens of stocked aisles at first, but Piggly Wiggly was an immediate success. It grossed $114,000 in the first six months, with expenses of only $3,000. Before long, there were over 1,000 of them in 40 states. The self-serve grocery store began to spread. Amazingly, one of the Biggest factors in the growth of the supermarket was the invention of the automobile ignition switch. Previously, housewives had to limit their shopping to stores within walking distance. It was too difficult and dangerous to turn the starter crank to get a car started. But once there was an easy way to start the car, housewives were set to travel miles to get bargains. This led to another significant innovation, the free parking lot. For the first time, parking was available right in front of a store. Customers didn't have to look for space on crowded streets. The attractiveness of this concept was demonstrated when the Kroger Grocery and Bakery Company opened in Indianapolis. It was surrounded on four sides by free parking lots. The store performed 40% above initial predictions and a whopping 80% of customers arrived by car. When the Depression hit in 1929, families found themselves struggling to buy food. Michael Cullen, manager of a Kroger grocery store, suggested opening a huge self-serve store far from the high-rent district, selling everything the shopper needed under one roof. Kroger executives thought the idea was crazy, so Cullen did it on his own, using his life savings. King Cullen, the price wrecker, opened in March 1930 in an abandoned warehouse in Jamaica, Long Island. Cullen knew the grocery business inside and out, which allowed him to buy dramatically reduced merchandise from the surplus stocks of food manufacturers. Plus, his store's size gave him great buying power. He bought massive quantities at lower prices than his competition could. Success came quickly. Two years later, Cullen was operating several more stores, and the super store concept was widely imitated. A few years later, in 1933, Cincinnati's Albers Supermarket became the first store to actually use the term supermarket. When Sylvan Goldman invented the shopping cart in 1937, supermarkets had everything they needed for long-term success. But the real explosion in new supermarkets came in the baby boom years. In 1951, Collier's Magazine reported that more than three supermarkets were opening a day in the United States a pace that only increased in the 1960s. In 1950, supermarkets accounted for 35% of all food sales in America. By 1960, that figure was 70%. Small groceries began to thin out. Beginning in 1960, the U.S. government even began using supermarkets as a propaganda tool to promote the American way. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and Queen Elizabeth both paid rapt attention as guides at supermarkets demonstrated how a steak was wrapped in cellophane. The 
the U.S. Information Agency even arranged for the Pope to come and bless an American supermarket. The government set up a demo store in several European cities where people were amazed at the variety of food under one roof. Italians in particular were astonished by certain aspects of American supermarkets, such as pet food, which didn't exist in Italy. It grew such a large crowd that the pet food section had to be removed. Another was the concept of self-service. Italians were amazed they could actually touch food before they bought it. Some even suspected the United States had devious motives in introducing the supermarket. Left-wing newspapers were full of conspiracy theories. Today, supermarkets are widespread in many countries, but they remain an international symbol of American culture and know-how. Who knew? Anyway, you know, except for toilet paper, I have to say it appears that um, the supermarkets I've been in, and, and I have traveled to go to the market, um, look pretty good. It's possible that online grocers are going to do very, very well in this. It's a certainty, actually, and maybe after the pandemic has passed, they will continue to do well. Um, if they do, we hope that the people who work for those companies can stay at home. I think I'm going to risk running along and telling a biographical story. If you look at a textbook on microbiology, it is amazing how much we understand about the various creatures and I don't know what we're going to actually call viruses, um, living thing, life forms, I guess is the term we decided upon, life forms, because they're sort of alive and sort of not. Sitting on a rock, a virus is inert. Inside the body of an animal or plant, or it makes more of itself, it's hijacking the machinery of the living organism. So yes, there are worlds out there of biology that surround things that are you know, microscopic in size, things that the human eye cannot detect because they're so small. But it's interesting to look back at the time in which man became aware that such a world existed. A book we're fond of on this program, if I've quoted many times over the years, is The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history by Michael H. Hart. Hart tried to assess which lives had come along that had changed the course of human history most definitively. And at the number 36 spot, he placed Antony von Leeuwenhoek, a name you should be familiar with. Leeuwenhoek was born in Delft in the Netherlands in 1632. At about the age of 40, he developed a new hobby, grinding lenses. He was not a professional lens grinder, nor did he ever receive formal instruction in the field. But the skill he developed was remarkable. It exceeded, far exceeded, that of any professionals of his day. Although the compound microscope using more than one lens had been invented a generation before he was born, Leeuwenhoek did not make use of it. Instead, by very careful and very accurate grinding of small lenses of a very short focal length, Leeuwenhoek was able to attain a resolving powder greater than any of the early compound microscopes. One of his surviving lenses has a magnifying power of about 270 times. If you ever work with a microscope, you know, that's pretty good. He was very meticulous. He had, he had good eyesight, and as Leeuwenhoek kept examining what things looked like under great magnification, boy, was he surprised. His greatest discovery came in 1674. When he was 42 years old, he made the first observations of microbes. Michael Hart described it as one of the great seminal discoveries in human history. Inside a small drop of water, 
Leeuwenhoek had discovered an entirely new world, a totally unexpected new world, timing with, teeming with life. And although he did not know it yet, this new world was of very great importance to human beings. Indeed, those little animacules that he had observed, that's what he called them, often held the power of life and death over humans. Once he studied them, Leeuwenhoek was able to find microbes in many different places, in wells, in ponds, in rainwater, in the mouths and intestines of human beings. Application of Leeuwenhoek's great discoveries were not to come until the time of Pasteur, Koch, and Lister, almost two centuries later. In fact, the entire subject of microbiology remained practically dormant until the 19th century when improved microscopes were developed. One might argue said Michael Hart, that had Leeuwenhoek never lived and his discoveries not been made until the 19th century, it might have made little difference. However, he said, there's no denying that Leeuwenhoek did discover microbes and that it was through him the scientific world actually became aware of their existence. Hart notes Leeuwenhoek is sometimes regarded as a man who by sheer luck happened to stumble on an important scientific discovery. He said nothing could be further from the truth. His discovery of microorganisms was a natural consequence of his careful construction of microscopes of unprecedented quality and his patience and accuracy as an observer. In other words, his discovery resulted from a combination of skill and hard work, the antithesis of mere luck. Hart notes the discovery of microbes is one of the few really important scientific discoveries that is largely attributable to the work of a single person. Leeuwenhoek worked alone, his discovery of protozoa and bacteria was unanticipated, and unlike most other advances in biology, was in no sense a natural outgrowth of previous knowledge. I have to admit, it, it is, it's, it's amazing to look back and realize that what we take for granted now, the fact that you know, there are things we can't really see that affect us, that are alive, that the world had no idea this existed. This sort of thing does not happen very often. Anyway, such discoveries are, are rare and thrilling, but uh, we will have many of you know a little less earth-shaking quality. Uh, in the near future, I think, I think we can actually count on that, that are going to allow some breakthroughs in the case of how we're going to deal with COVID-19. And you know, that's probably a good place for which we should stop today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, who's now going to risk life and limb by returning on California's highways to his home. We hope the last two programs of a PSA nature have been interesting and more importantly of some value to you. It's become somewhat of a cliche that information is power, but it is. So with your help, we're going to keep trying to separate that signal from the noise and uh, circulate some information of value. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. See you soon. After you're climbing a rope, pass over the soap. And if you want to see gross, look in a microscope. That's what we mean. And go play with a tree limb. Just know when you're done that you gotta go clean them. Shoes clean. I selected. So cover me in. Antiseptic. I'll be the clean president if elected. This is the clean run. And I just wrecked it. Wash your hands.